Take your Bible and go over to Isaiah 63. As you're turning there, I want to have you think with me this morning about how you would answer a pretty simple question. That question is, what do you want? Like right now, today, what do you want? I know the question has some layers to it. For instance, uh, my wife and daughter, I took them to an ice cream shop in Zionsville this weekend, and there's a particular um, flavor of ice cream that caught my attention. It's called Exhausted Parent. <laughs> and it's, it was nearly empty, the, the whole canister was. It had, um, I'll just say, adult flavors with it. I'll, I'll let you check it out. But for some of you, exhausted parent isn't just a flavor of ice cream. It's actually where you are today. And when I say what you want, you're just like, I want some rest. Or I want my kids just to chill out or to be obedient while we're waiting in line today at church. You woke up this morning and thought, oh, please, Lord, let them be good. I don't want to be embarrassed. If you're a high school senior, you may just want to be done with school. If you're looking for a job or stuck in a dead-end career, you might be looking for meaningful work. If you're a counselor, you might just want people to be reasonable and listen to each other, to work out their problems. If you're struggling with an ongoing health issue, you just might want to wake up and feel healthy again. If you're dealing with an ongoing relationship conflict, you might just want there to be peace. If you're struggling financially, you might just want enough money so you can make it. If you feel deeply unattractive, you may just want someone to notice you. If you're lonely, you just want someone to be your friend. What do you want? Another way to ask the question would be for you to consider what you used to want. Sometimes the things that we want aren't good things. We can maybe think back on the last year or the last couple of years or the whole trajectory of our life and we realize that there's some things that we wanted that were way out of balance. And if you think about our temptations as human beings, underneath the things that seem attractive to us and the things that we're prone to be tempted by, underneath that temptation, are wants. Final question. What's something that you wished you wanted? I wished I wanted to eat healthy. I wished I wanted to exercise. I wished I wanted to save money. I wished I wanted to pray more. I wish I wanted to share my faith. I wish I wanted to be generous. I wish... I wanted to be content. You see, to be human, church, is to want. You can't turn off want in your life. You're only able to redirect your want, sometimes towards what is good, and if we're honest, sometimes toward what is bad. To be human is to be a wanter. James K. A. Smith puts it this way, to be human, is to be for something, directed by something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something, after something. We are like existential sharks 
We have to move to live. We're not just static containers for ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed towards some end. You see, this is the miracle of conversion, of what it means to be a Christian. It is that God changes by the power of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus. He changes what you want such that his glory now becomes the most attractive, most appealing reality in the universe. It's like Augustine said in 300, or three, he lived between 354 and 430 AD, he said it this way, thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Putting your faith in Jesus means that you come to see that God's grace is the thing that fills the deep want in your life. When you become a Christian, God supernaturally changes what you want, which is why the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says, seek those things that are above. Set your mind on those things so that you can put to death the things that remain in your life in Colossians chapter three. So what we think about, what we set our minds upon, what we worship, it directly affects what you want. Another way of saying this is you become what you behold. Spend enough time thinking about something and it will direct your wants that direction. Marketers know this. Artificial intelligence and social media knows this. What you behold creates wants. And that's one of the reasons that the book of Isaiah is so incredibly helpful. Over and over, Isaiah is giving us a big view of God. And in this third section, chapters 56 through 66, Isaiah is particularly focused on how do we live in light of this big vision of who God is. In other words, Isaiah shows us this is what God is like and you ought to want him. His big God strategy is a way that he is attempting to direct the hearts of God's people toward what they should want. So here's what this text invites us to do. It invites us to marvel at God's justice and mercy so you long for more of him. To come into this text, to see what is in here, and to marvel at the justice and the mercy of God so that you'll be compelled by the end of this service to say, I want more of you. I want more. I am dissatisfied with my present acquisition of what you are like and what it means. Our goal in gathering on the Lord's Day for worship as we sing together, pray together, as we study the Bible together, we meet together, we celebrate together, is that it creates a longing a wanting for more of God and more of one another. So in Isaiah 63 today, two questions and then some applications. First question, who is God? Second question, what do we want? Who is God, what do we want? And then I wanna draw three implications or three applications to think about how do we direct our wants the right way. So first, who is God. Chapter 63 begins with a question. Look at it in your Bible. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? 
The image here is of a watchman on a wall. He looks in the distance, and from the region of Edom, he sees someone coming. The watchman is watching for threats, and what he sees is alarming. The figure here is the same person that we've seen before. It's the anointed one. Remember in chapter 61 and verse 2, we heard these words. This was the spot where Jesus read in the scroll in the city of Nazareth to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stopped in Isaiah 61, but the rest of the verse says, and the day of vengeance of our God. So the whole verse was to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So what we have here is a picture of judgment or a picture of vengeance. Now quickly, the word vengeance initially may strike you as a bit over the top, but it's important to recognize here that the Bible is not talking and will not talk in this text about the kind of vengeance or judgment that you and I normally have in mind. We usually associate vengeance with something that's evil or wrong. But what's happening in the text here is biblical justice. By way of reminder, biblical justice is that which fits with the goodness and righteousness of God. And this text is about justice. It's about vengeance. It's about judgment. And it's important for you to know or maybe to remember that the plan of God in salvation is to save sinners. But what are sinners saved from? They're not just saved from their sin. They are saved from the judgment of God over their sin. So in many respects, Jesus saves us from being on the wrong side of God's righteousness. In our appropriate celebration of God's grace and mercy, we need to remember that Christians are saved from something. We're saved from God's judgment of evil. That's why the words Edom and Basra are so important. Basra was the capital of Edom. And Edom as a nation was a particular adversary for the nation of Israel. If you want to look it up later, Amos 1 and verse 11 highlights this. And so Edom is a representative of the constant attack that the people of God faced. The, the city represented something more than just the city. The nation represented more than just the nation. We do the same thing, don't we? If the image here was, who is this that comes from Las Vegas? You'd have a thought. Or if you said, who is this that comes from inside the Beltway in Washington, D.C.? You're like, yeah, there we go. So those cities represent things that are more than just the boundaries of a locality. There's a bigger meaning. And the picture we get in verse one is that he is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. So the first view is, wow, here comes someone real important. There's sort of a glory that's around him. And then he speaks. Notice the quotation marks in your Bible. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Here is the anointed one who speaks. He speaks in righteousness, remember the anointed one, the Messiah, the, this coming one who becomes Jesus in the New Testament. He leads and judges and rescues by his word. 
Here is the anointed one who makes a statement that he is speaking the truth and he comes to rescue his people. He is mighty to save. That's why our, our theme of the book of Isaiah from the very beginning since last June has been our God saves. It's the golden thread that weaves its way through the entire Old Testament book. But notice now the second question in verse two. Why is your apparel red? and your garments like his who treads in the winepress. So he sees him in his majesty, but suddenly as he gets nearer, he realizes, wait a minute, his garments look like they're soiled. And when he says like one who's been in a winepress, they used to press out grapes by stomping on them and the garments would splash with the juice of the grapes. So his apparel is red and he treads the winepress because These are images in the Old Testament of judgment. Verses four and six, or rather three rather, gives us an answer to what's happening here. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Here comes a pretty graphic description. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. That's what's happening. This is a, an image of, of judgment. Now, let me reassure you, when we get to verse seven, we're gonna to get to the mercy part, but can you just allow the tension of this judgment scene to be what the Bible intends it to be, that God is full of mercy and grace, but he's also a God to be feared. He's holy, he's righteous. If you're not a Christian, you don't wanna be on the wrong side of this God. You don't want to stand before him and have to give an account for your life and have no atonement for your sins. The Bible issues strong warnings here because what's at stake is eternally serious. This is a big deal. The text continues. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, in verse four, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Verse six, I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Again, here is a pretty graphic scene of judgment. But can I remind you that Salvation in the New Testament was and is a bloody event. It's important to get this image right. When you think of the word rescue and Jesus rescuing you or God rescuing you, you need to understand that this rescue operation is not like trying to find a person lost in the woods. The image is not of a boat that's sort of gone off course and is lost at sea. In that moment, surely, is some kind of rescue action where people are trying to figure out where those lost people are. Your energy is spent searching for them. But God's rescue of sinners in salvation is not necessarily like that. To be saved means to be rescued from captivity to be rescued from powerful forces that are not inclined to let you go. God's deliverance then is less like searching for a lost person in the woods and more like a special ops team attempting to rescue people from forces that are opposed to God's rule, oppresses people and will die before they will let you go. 
God isn't just a rescue party. He's a warrior who comes to set you free and not without immense conflict. Is it no wonder then that the book of Exodus helps us to see how important the moment is when God delivers his people from Egypt? He delivers them, but not without a massive conflict between the gods of Egypt and the God of Israel. He delivered his people, but he delivered them through powerful judgment. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus inaugurates deliverance He inaugurates deliverance from the clutches of the devil. How? By the sacrifice of a bloody cross. And it's why the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life as needing spiritual armor and as a battle with unseen spiritual forces. All week long, you've just not lived, Christian. You have been in a war a war over your wants, and the devil wants you to want the wrong things. He wants to hold you and make you captive and make you fall and make you depressed and make you discouraged. He wants you to not make the name of Jesus glorious. This isn't just one thing among other things. This is a battle for the very hearts and minds of people, including your own. It's why the book of Revelation describes the return of Jesus as one whose robe is dipped in blood and who is called the word of God in Revelation 19. So, by the way, we're in Isaiah 63. We only have a few more chapters. You might wonder, what's next? This summer, we're gonna do a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, wrestling with What really matters in life? Some of you ask that question. And in the fall, we're gonna begin a series on the book of Revelation, beginning in September, all the way through to summer, about 22 weeks or so. I heard the sound of your anticipation of whoo, and I certainly feel that. But I think it's a fitting book for us to realize, brothers and sisters in Christ, we're in a war, and we've always been in a war. So I realize that this picture in Isaiah 63 is a bit graphic, but I think it's important to realize the danger of being on the wrong side of God's holiness, isn't it? Sometimes we become, friends, so accustomed to the presence of sin and the reality of death in the world that we forget or we don't feel how outrageous sin is or how outrageous death is. We become inoculated to human rebellion. We become inoculated to our own rebellion and we lose the outrage. 10 people losing their life in Buffalo last night should never, ever become something that we see and go, "Eh, that's too bad. It should be something that grieves us, especially when nefarious motives appear at this point in time to be under the surface. It's easy because of how much we know, the information that comes at us, that we become inoculated such that sin becomes normal and injustice becomes common and atrocities become so frequent that we lose our sense of shock. And this text is a reminder of the cosmic battle that wages right now for the hearts and minds of people. God will win in the day. Jesus is going to come back. But right now, friends, it is still a fight, a fight that we must engage in. Now, thankfully, 
Verse seven enters the picture because here's the other thing that God is like. God's not only a God of justice, a God of judgment, he's also a God of mercy. Verse seven, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So what what Isaiah does is he says, look, this is true about God's holiness, his righteousness, his majesty, and he's also merciful. I I do wonder, I've said this before, but I, I do wonder if in the new heavens and the new earth, when we see God's glory, and we see him in his majesty, and we realize how pure and righteous he is, and how sinful we were, and we think of what Jesus did for us, that in that moment, we will not only feel gratitude, we will also feel a sense of my goodness, that was a close call. Were it not for the grace of God, I wouldn't want to be on the other side of that much holiness. Verses in seven through 14, Isaiah exalts in the mercy of God. He says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the great goodness to the house of Israel. In verse eight, he says, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. Here is God believing the best about his people. Verse eight, and he became their savior. Notice verse nine, such a precious text In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Wow. God does not remain distant from his people's suffering. He is present. He's compassionate. He's loving. He acts to provide deliverance. Do you see how this connects to the ministry of Jesus? Here is the son of God who enters our world. He becomes one of us. He experiences the limitations and temptations of our broken world. He is full of mercy. He is full of grace. He's right there with us. In our affliction, he is afflicted. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifts them up and or lifted them up rather, and carried them all the days of old. That's who God is, that's what he's like. But notice, again we come back to, but what are we like? But they rebelled and grieved his spirit. What did God do? Therefore he turned to be their enemy, he fought against them. These verses anchored in the mercy of God reveal real events in the past where God helps his people But at other times, he opposes them because they need to be brought back from the path that they're on. Verse 11, then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble like livestock that go down into the valley. The Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. The idea is that God loves his people. He disciplines them And Isaiah recounts the faithfulness of God in the history of the people of God in order to remind the people of God that God can be trusted even when his hand is heavy 
when he's graciously trying to awaken us to get off of a wrong path and onto the right path. Some of you are in that very spot today, that the problems and the challenges of your life, of your life are because of the fact you're heading down the wrong path. There are some times when the negative events in our life, yes, health issues, conflicts, are because of direct sin in a Christian's life where God says, hey, I gotta get your attention. You might say, well, how do I know? My answer is, oh, you know. You know. God's doing this because he's trying to get my attention. You might be here today and you're not yet a Christian. And God may be using hard circumstances in your life or some sort of difficulty in order to wake you up to the fact of the matter that you can't do life on your own. And these verses are designed to remind us of these things. So who's a, who is God? He's a God full of justice. He's a God full of mercy. He's a God of vengeance, a God who will make wrong right. And listen, there's a right sense in your heart that you should want wrongs to be made right. You're traveling on the highway, some guy blows doors off of your car going 90 miles an hour and a quarter mile down the road, you see blue lights and pulled over, you drive by, don't honk, don't smile, but just be like, praise God for the police, right? So you're you're thankful. You got a bully who's been after you or an oppressive person at work and finally somebody steps in and gives them what they are due and puts a stop to the inappropriate behavior and there's a sense within your heart of, no, that's right. That's not a wrong feeling, that's a right feeling, that's a God-given feeling, that when the world is set aright, God is glorified. He's a God that disciplines, he's a God that keeps his promises. And my question is, how did you think about God this week? Do you think of him this way? Do you think of our gathering together on Sunday morning as a helpful reset of a reminder what he's like. Did you see things this week and you forgot Jesus died for that wickedness? Did you say things and forget I've been set free from this filth? Do you have a heart filled with vengeance and revenge? And have you forgotten But the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Some of you have tried to be your own God this week by getting your pound of flesh because you think you know how to enact punishment better than God himself. We need a view of God that fits with the prophet Isaiah. Do you have a balanced view of both grace and justice, kindness and retribution? Do you love God and respect him? You see, what you do with Jesus has sweeping implications for how you see God. What you do with Jesus has sweeping implications. For instance, on Easter, we use the theme, obviously, Jesus is alive. And for Christians, wow, what a great statement that is. Jesus is alive is a rallying cry of hope for those who put their trust in him as Savior and Lord. Jesus is alive is filled with hope unless You killed him. Imagine Peter preaching and telling to them, the people, the one who you crucified is Lord in Christ and he's coming back. I bet they're looking up like, (laughs) and they should. Because if you're part of the crowd that falsely accused him or if you live your life 
And don't deal with the distance between you and your God. If you continue to live in unrepentance and continue to push against the claim of Jesus as Lord and Savior, then the fact that Jesus is alive is deeply threatening. And it should be. In fact, one of my roles in this moment, on this Lord's Day, before we even go out and have a great celebration, is to, be, is to remind you that celebration outside is only a thinly veiled reality of another world to come, and that other world is completely conditioned on what you do with Jesus and the reality of a holy God and your sin. Every person needs to decide what side he or she is on, and these are not merely academic decisions. These are eternal decisions. So friend, if you're not a Christian today, why don't you come to put your faith in Jesus? Today, why not be, let that be the day today? Christian, can I remind you what God saved you from? He just didn't save you to heaven, he saved you from sin, he saved you from the judgment of God. So the first question is who is God? Second question, what do we want? Look at verse 15. This is now a prayer for mercy. At certain moments, it's a lament. He prays, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion, they're held back from me. Here is Isaiah calling out on behalf of God's people, we feel like you're a million miles away, God. But they're not blaming God, they know it's because of their own rebellion, because of their sinfulness. They're gonna be in captivity and they want to go back to the promised land. Verse 16, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So what they're doing is saying this, God, you're our creator, you're our savior, you're our rescuer, you're our God, but you feel like you're a thousand miles away. Some of you know what that's like, that's where you are spiritually. You're in church, good job. You got your Bible open, well done. You're submitting as best you can to hearing and receiving the word, but your heart is so far from God today, and this text is for you, for you to say, God, I want you back. It's not that you've lost your salvation. That can't happen if you're a real believer, but it does mean that your spiritual vitality has started to tank, and this text is inviting you to say to God, I want more of you. I'm not contented with just some sort of veneer Christianity. I want to know you. I want to be intimate. I want to be relationally connected to you. He says, oh Lord, verse 17, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? In other words, God, don't leave us to our own devices because the further we go down in our sinfulness, the easier it is to sin. You know that's true, right? The more sermons you hear and don't respond to, the easier it is to not respond to a sermon. Your heart begins to harden and calcify as you can push away particular truths. He says, return, there's the key word, for the sake of your servants, the tribe of your heritage. Come back, Lord. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. What's he appealing for here? He's appealing for God to be known among his people and for his glory to be felt. They look at their society and their culture and they see a deep need for God's help. 
We'll cover this text next week, but look ahead to chapter 64, verse one. Here's the apex of his prayer. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. The idea is, God, if you could just show up, if you could just move, if you could intervene, everything, absolutely everything would change. The text here in chapter 63 ends with a statement of discontentment. We have become like people not called by your name. So Christian, do you feel any discontentment right now? Do you feel any sense of where you want more of God in your life? When you look at the brokenness of the world, the hostility of the culture towards Christianity, or maybe the shallowness of evangelicalism, what do you think? What do you say? Do you say, man, those people are messed up? Do you say, this place has fallen apart? Or do you say, oh God, we need you. We need you to come. We need you to be here because you need to understand that underneath what you say in those moments is the question of what you really want. Do you want more of God because of God? Or let me say this gently, do you want more of God so you can have your comfortable life back? Do you just want a comfortable, American, Judeo-Christian affirming life where people treat you with respect and acceptance and where you can know that when you die, you go to heaven? Is that Christianity to you? Because that's not the historic vision of what Christianity is all about. Christianity thrives when it's in exile, when it's on the outs. Thrives when God's people are so desperate that they know, I can't do it, I can't fix it, I can't fund it, I don't know what to do, here's what I know. God, would you rend the heavens and come down? Because if you come in this marriage and in our society and in our church and in our life, when you come down, everything changes. So now what do we do with this? Let me give you three questions at the end by way of application. One, how does your view of God and what you want inform your life right now? How does your view of God and what you want inform how you live right now? If you're not a Christian, this is an urgent question for you to consider. How does your view of God, you have a view of God, and how do you think about what you want? How does that inform how you live? And it could be today that God's turning your heart from your sins to trust in Christ because you're realizing that what I believed about God and what I'm living for aren't working. Yes, that's the message of the Bible. It starts with, you need help. And Jesus opens his arms and says, come to me if you're weary, I'll give you rest. If you're a Christian, how does what you believe about God and what you want affect your life? How is it really working. For some of us, this Lord's Day may be a good moment for us just to say, God, I need a reset about what's really important. Secondly, does the brokenness in the world and in you draw you to ask for more of God? 
Does the brokenness in the world and in you draw you to ask more of God? Is it possible that God is using pain in your life or around you to get your attention? Why not ask God for more of him? Some of you may need to change your posture as it relates to the world. Does bad news or upsetting news break your heart or does it just tick you off? When you see the brokenness of the world, do you think if God could show up, that could change? Or do you just cross your arms and think, those people? Can I remind you, you were one of those people and God came to you. When you're offended or treated unfairly, are you tempted to take your vengeance? Or are you able to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? There's a view of God and what you want in that decision. Third and last question. How might you increase your marveling of God? How might, in the next week, you increase your marveling of God. A couple suggestions. Some of you need to make church attendance a higher priority. Being here once a month is not going to be helpful in shaping your heart to value the things of God. It's as simple as saying, we need to make the gathering of God's people important. Do you need to linger a little longer over the word this week? Do you need to slow down in your prayer time? Do you, you need to find something that you need to give up because it's just consuming too much time and deflating your soul? Do you need to find over the summer some theologically oriented books that give you a big picture of God? Just ask one of our staff or our pastors. We'll give you a few books that'll help you think big thoughts about God. So I began this sermon with a question and a caution. The question was, what do you want? The caution is, we become what we behold. So outside these doors is an all-church celebration, and our aim is to find creative ways to connect with one another and enjoy the kind of fellowship that makes church uniquely special. And can I encourage you, as you celebrate, would you let the food and the fellowship and the environment and the weather remind you that there is coming another celebration that will never end. The food will never run out. The fellowship will never have to cease. There won't be pastoral dunk tanks, I'm sure. <laughs> but there is coming a day when that festival will never end, a day when we will behold the glory of God. And until that day, while we're in the world and while we fight to the very finish line, we are called to marvel at his goodness, to marvel at his justice, so that we will long for more of him. We are called to marvel at God so that we want more, more, more. Lord Jesus, increase, I pray, the capacity of our hearts to know you and love you right now. Lord Jesus, provide encouragement where it's needed, peace where there is dissonance. Provide hope to some who've come today that this, not even sure if what they believe is true anymore. Oh God, would you meet 
their needs and remind them that what they behold is what they become. So help us to behold right now. And as we sing and celebrate amazing truths, would you let those things create within us an appetite that only you can satisfy? Because God, we want more of you. We want more of you in our church. We want more people to come to faith in Christ. We want more baptisms. We want more generosity. We want more reconciliation. We want more love. We want more godliness. We want you to rend the heavens and come down to College Park Church and to meet with us because everything we do and are is all about you. Yes. So come, Lord, even now as we sing, help us to marvel at what we're singing so that more of you is what we acquire. Yes. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.